Well, good morning. Good morning. Good to see you this morning. Good to be seen. I only saw a few few people last week. Uh, we started in Ecclesiastes last week, but I'm gonna I'm gonna recap what I did last week. Amen. In fact, you can just play last week's service if you want to. Last week's lesson. If I was gonna sit down and listen to it. If you've heard last week, you can play on your cell phone. Everyone do it. But I'm going to try and recap a little bit about what we talked about because uh, I wanted to talk about Ecclesiastes before we started getting into Ecclesiastes. Boy, look, I've been through the mill. I'm like that old guy. I was feeling better, but I got over it. Got the post-COVID. Of course, I'm, in, I'm, I'm always getting off cold this time of year, so, you know, it kind of went right into one thing and into the other. So, I don't know. so we're going to recap. Let me just talk for a bit here. Let me have a word of prayer first. Father, thank you, Lord, for the folks, Lord, that are, are back with us this week, Father, that were, Amen. have been down, Father, were sick. And pray God you bless them, Lord. Pray God you heal them up, Lord, and bring them back up to 100%, Father. Amen. Pray, Lord Jesus, bless our church, Lord, as we go through this, this trial, Lord, uh, that the whole world's going through. Pray God you bless today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Ecclesiastes, as I said last week, is an example of uh, a Jewish literary tradition, and it's called wisdom literature. If you remember back in Job, we talked about Job. That was a different kind of literature, too. I can't remember what it was. But anyways, it was competitive speaking, pretty much. Uh, and this type of literature here in Ecclesiastes is called uh, pessimism literature. And this is the only example in the Bible. Pessimism literature. And I explained to everybody that I am a pessimist. And what's the advantage of being a pessimist? Never disappointed. Never disappointed. That's right. <laughs> if you expect the worst and it comes, yeah, I knew it was going to work out that way. <laughs> Once in a while, you get surprised. Wow. But that's the way I was raised, I guess. My mom. Anyway, I won't get on my mom. She's got some other. We had some problems. So anyways, I'm a lean towards a pessimism. Isn't that right, hon? Yeah. Well, thank you. I'm glad. So this is the only example in the Bible of pessimism literature, okay? That's why you have a lot of folks. I had problems understanding this book because I left, read it, and I felt I'm really kind of bummed out. I don't really know what I'm. I don't really know what I read. Anybody you like that? I read through it through my annual Bible reading, and I read it, and I said, I'm done, and wonder what I was supposed to learn from that. But there's a lot in here. Amen. Ecclesiastes is not only a collection of wisdom material; it's also a narrative. Within its pages is a person who inconspicuously appears in the name of. Kohelet, or the preacher as it's defined, translated, not only is Kohelet's identify, uh, uh, identity concealed, and, and though it seems that his wisdom is presented in, the book, presented in the book, he's not the author. Solomon did not write Ecclesiastes. I got a school field that's written by his, No, it wasn't written by him. There was a lot of hypotheses who wrote it, and I'm, I'm going to teach the hypothesis that he didn't write it. And I'll explain to you why. 
Ecclesiastes is an exploration of the barrenness of life without a practical relationship with God. I discussed this last week. What does practical mean? It's pretty impactful last week. I know folks are trying to bring that memory up. What did you have for breakfast? Um, uh, practical means you participate in it, don't you? You do something. You're, you're a part of it. Not, that, not, not the, I have God, I'm okay kind of relationship with God. You get a little more than that. I worship God. God blesses me. I, I love God. He loves me back. That's a practical relationship. Just saying, I acknowledge God, that's not a relationship. Okay? So, intermingled with all this pessimism, we're going to see invitations to a different outlook altogether. That's what the writer of Ecclesiastes is going to present. But there appears to be two persons in the book. So what I'm going to teach my hypothesis, the one that I subscribe to, is a lot of commentaries on Ecclesiastes, and a lot of them make a lot of sense. They really kind of go with each other's thought and kind of continue on, and that's sort of the, you know, the conventional wisdom they want to put out there. But there's two people here. There's an author-editor that's presenting in his own words and in his own style the teachings of a revered wise man named Solomon. So I think there's someone else telling the story, saying what Solomon did or would do. But it's not Solomon writing it. Nowhere in this book does it say Solomon wrote the book. Let's go on. So the revered preacher, Kohelet, is Solomon. Can you see the preacher? That's Solomon. The editor-author presenting Kohelet's wisdom is an unnamed, uh, unknown devotee or disciple of Solomon. And he did this work in an undisclosed, undisclosed location. COVID really affects my speech. We don't know where he wrote it at, and we don't know when he wrote it. Okay? So, so Kohelet was the originator of the material, and the unnamed author-editor presented it here. The name Solomon is totally avoided in this book. So Kohelet, or the preacher, is probably an artificial name, uh, there was a sign by this writer. When was Ecclesiastes written? We don't have the slightest idea. As I mentioned last week, they've had dates from um, like 935, 937, even clear up to the second century AD because of there's some Greek influence there somewhere. So they can't pinpoint the year or the time it was written. In fact, the language that it was written in, they can't place that language in any place in history. It was a combination of them. We talked about last week of, uh, boy, we had Northern Hebrew, we had this, we had that, we had Aramaic, we had this combination of all these languages. It's very, they can't place a time in history where this would fit in. So it's, it's, uh, we don't know when it was written, we don't know who wrote it, but he portrays the material as coming from Mr. Preacher and this person has all the characteristics of Solomon except for his name. We can look at this book, 
maybe it was written back in the 900 BC time. But the thing about this book that's important when I studied it through, this book is current today. Amen. We are going to see today that's right. in this book as we study every week. We're going to see today. Man today. That's right. Uh, the way we live, our realm, if you will, today. It's current. It's up to date. Amen. It's not a historical book. Well, they, this is how they did this back then. This is today. We'll see it. <clears throat> Let me catch up here where I am. Okay, we talked about the linguistic, linguistic research. Can't figure out when it was. We were talking last week before I closed about the canonicity of Hebrews. And I spent a little bit of time on what the canon is. Uh, and I'm going to go through that again just a little bit here. The canon uh, is not an authorized list of books. The canon is a list of authorized books. See the difference? A list of authorized books or an authorized list of books. Okay, so there's a difference there. Basic considerations of the canon. What does the canon mean? You may know what that means, the word canon. The Greeks spell it K-O-N-O-N. That should bring it right up to your mind there. What does that mean, canon? It means to measure. It was originally used as a rod or a reed, some kind of a measuring instrument. Okay? Then it became known, looked at as a rule of action. Turn to, um, turn to Galatians chapter 6, verse 16. I'm going to recover these verses here again like I did last week. Galatians 6, 16. It says, as many as walk according to this, what? Rule, peace be on them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. Look at Philippians 3.16. Philippians 3.16. Nevertheless, whereunto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. So that word canon means uh, a law, a set of rules. We call it in America the rule of, help me out, you've heard it on TV all the time. Yeah, the rule of law that we don't follow. We have all these rules and things are supposed to be followed. Everybody knows how they're supposed to act. You know what the borders are? Not north or south. I mean, say you're driving down the road, the rule of law is a yellow line and a white line. Unless you're from England or Australia, you stay on this side of the yellow one. That's your. We'll hear from you guys. <laughs> we'll figure it out. <laughs> go opposite of the ones coming at you. Okay, there you go. <clears throat> um, so there's a there was a rule back in the in New Testament, the rule of law. They were talking about a rule, and that's the measuring thing. So that that's the rule. The disciples were talking about it. The apostles were talking about it. the same rule, the same thing. Okay, so. That's what that word canon means. Now, uh, if you study the canon, you go through all these through all these rules, these councils and churches and blah, blah, blah. Who decided what was going to be in the Bible? What books were going to be in the Bible? God did. It wasn't some council or some church or a group of men. God was the decider. We're in Ecclesiastes. God was the decider. He was the final determinator 
Was that a movie? No, that was Terminator, wasn't it? Okay, never mind. The Determinator. Uh, God decided. God gave us the, the authorized list of books that were going to be in the Bible. God inspired the writings. Inspired the writings. Those writings became the word of God as soon as they were finished. Didn't take some church, some council, some group of men to figure out if that meets uh, canonical requirements. They had a whole list. Let me show you something. Within the claims uh, in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is the wisdom in Ecclesiastes came from one shepherd. That's in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 11. Turn back there a second. Ecclesiastes chapter number 12, verse 11. And when we get to this part of the, the lesson later on, we're going to talk about this much, much deeper. Chapter 12, verse 11. The words of the wise are as goads and as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd. Amen. But they're calling that's not capitalized. I can capitalize that easy enough. Just get a pen. And... No, it's talking about the one shepherd. That's God. That's where this wisdom comes from. We'll get into that deeper when we get, when we get down there. Books in the Bible are self-authenticating. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. What does inspiration mean? God breathe. God Excellent. If you were to blow up a balloon by yourselves, not using one of those machines, that's inspiration. I'm proud of you for trying. No, it's inspiration. Your breath is going into something. That's what... The Bible is God breathed. God breathed. That's what inspiration means. Amen. So it was not necessary for churches or councils to examine the scriptures and decide if they were acceptable or not. That's what I said last week. You think God would write the Bible and leave it up to man which book should be in there? No. No. The books that were rejected initially by some of these churches and councils, they rejected the Song of Solomon. Because it seemed like just a mere poem about human love. They rejected Ecclesiastes. They thought it taught atheism or something else. They couldn't understand what it was talking about. They rejected it. Esther, because it didn't mention the word God one time. They rejected Ezekiel because it contradicted the Mosaic Law, they thought. They rejected Proverbs because it seemed to contradict itself. New Testament books. They rejected Hebrews. Didn't know who wrote it. I know who wrote it. You know who wrote it? I believe I, believe I do. Paul. But it was written by Mr. Anonymous. Okay? He's a person. He's a person. They rejected that because they couldn't confirm its authorship. They rejected the book of James. Because, the, uh, because it seemed to contradict the teachings of Paul. They find a part of a verse. A text out of context becomes a pretext. So you yank something out there, yank out something else, and you got the verse, Jesus wouldn't hang themselves, himself, go and do the likewise. That's what a text out of context is. It's a pretext. You can make up your own scripture. That's what they did. 
Second and third John because they seem to be just two simply uh, two personal letters. They took out the book of Jude because it refers to an uncanonical un Old Testament book called the book of who knows Enoch. It mentioned the book of Enoch. How many of the kings back in the Old Testament had a book? And all of their seers and all their prophets that they had had a book. I said last week, you can find those books online. And if you know Hebrew, you can, you can read them. Uh, but, you know, everybody had a book. Everybody today has a book. You got a book? Got a book deal coming out. They didn't like Revelation because of the uncertainty of the book's authorship and because it had very uh, many mysterious symbols and things they didn't understand, so they, they tossed it out. We would have had about a paperback Bible here if they would have had their way. Yeah, Not very big. But God says these books are going to be in there. Amen. I wrote them. They're going to be in there. So that's why we have them today. What is the message of Ecclesiastes? Ecclesiastes is an essay in apologetics. Apologetics is not Obama going around the world saying, I'm sorry for being an American. <laughs> that's not apologetics. Okay. Apologetics are reasoned arguments or writings in justification of something, typically a theory or a religious doctrine. So you hear, I, I got some books on apologetics. It's just doctrine. It's just facts. It's just people writing about religious doctrine, things like that. A lot of your commentaries come from apologetics. Okay, so it's an apologetic. It's talking about a religious doctrine. It's talking about religion. It's talking about God. Ecclesiastes defends the life of faith in a generous God by pointing out the hopelessness of the alternative. There is a heaven and earth contrast in Ecclesiastes. The uh, preacher divides reality into two realms. Anybody can define realm? Neither can I, but it, it's a domain, it's a, a sphere, it's a world, it's an orbit, it's a realm. When I define realm, I have to use the word realm in it anyways. But there's two separate things there, okay? There's, there, there's a realm. God is in heaven, and the other place is the dwelling place of man. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 2. Two realms that we're going to explore in this book. Ecclesiastes 5, verse number 2. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and thou upon the earth. Therefore let thy words be few. Two realms, heaven and earth. Okay? We're not in heaven, okay? we're on earth. So it separates it out, two realms, two spheres, two places. So there's an earthly side, which is earth. There's three expressions we're going to see in the book of Ecclesiastes. Under the sun, the most common one, under heaven, and on earth. So we know who God's talking to, or who's being talked to. The major interpretive problem in Ecclesiastes is that it has some 
apparent internal contradictions and it jumps around a lot. That's why it's hard just to read through it and say, well, I thought you said here it said that, and then over here now it's saying this. It's hard. It's a moving target. It's hard to get an outline on Ecclesiastes. It won't stand still long enough. You're here, and then he's talking about this. Then all of a sudden, you're back over here again. It's difficult to understand. Difficult to study and teach. Okay? The thought changes sometimes. At times, the preacher seems to be gloomy, pessimistic, and alone. At other points, there's laughter, drink, work, riches, and honor. And other points that saying we should enjoy life, eat well, and be content with what God has given us. Other places, that's a woe is me. Where is God in Ecclesiastes? A notable feature about Ecclesiastes is God's not mentioned for a little while. And then he is. And then things change dramatically. It refers to Israel one time. That's in verse number 12 of chapter 1. I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. But then the preacher uh, 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 introduces God and everything changes. And we'll see that. So under the sun, terminology falls into the background of man on earth. When we start talking about God, we see the hand of God, the joy of man, and the generosity of God. We see that the most, the generosity of God. Why was Ecclesiastes written? The preacher wished to deliver us from a rose-colored, self-confident, self-absorbed, godless life with its inevitable cynicism and bitterness. Today? Rose-colored, self-confident, self-absorbed, godless life, cynical and bitter. Today. And from trusting in man's wisdom, in pleasure, in wealth, and in human justice or integrity. Welcome to 2021. The preacher wants to drive us or move us to see that God is there and that he is good and generous and only such an outlook as that makes life coherent and fulfilling. The structure of Ecclesiastes is very difficult to analyze because I said it seems to be a moving target. It's everywhere. Therefore, trying to establish an outline was very difficult. I looked at a lot of other outlines, and they were pretty sparse. Um, but I found one in uh, a Tyndale book, uh, Commentary on Ecclesiastes, written by Michael Eaton, and, and I followed his outline. His was extremely detailed. You're going to find out, because I'm going to kind of um, give us a, a preface to each section I'm going to teach, and his was extremely detailed, and I... I Use that. I stole that. I borrowed that. I thought it was worth teaching. So, nine one one. We have a you know, but uh, there are four main sections of what we're going to study here, and a lot of subpoints. The first section is pessimism, its problem and its remedy. Second section is life under the sun. Third section is a call to decision. And there's an epilogue in chapter number 12. That's the last section. Okay? 
I'm going to try to provide a brief preface or synopsis about what's going to happen. So the first section is pessimism, its problem, and its remedy. And that goes from verse number 1-1 to chapter 3, verse 22. I'm going to give you the preface here first, and then we'll look at the actual verses. The opening chapters are exposing a problem, pessimism, and presenting a basic outline of its solution. The problem is life itself. Viewed without reference to God, that is, under the sun, the world in which we find ourselves is chaotic and without meaning or progress. Anybody there? Been there? How many of you young guys, men and women, wonder what God's going to do with your life? What's God's will for my life even? Yeah. Even I do. So what are you going to do with me now? You know, we had that thought as a young person. God, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? What's going to happen to me? And you, you kind of thought you were in God's will. You kind of thought things were going right. And when you get to my age... I'm 112. You get to my age, about 67, you start looking back, and how did I get to Bellingham? How did I get here? What got me here and why? And it's fun. You've got to have a lot of miles under your belt. But it's fun to look back and see what God did in your life to bring you where you are, Amen. if you let him do that. You're not like the guy on the street saying, I don't know how I got here. No, you're the guy that looks back and says, I can see how God worked in my life Amen. to bring me here. Things happened in my life 20, 30 years ago. They were not pleasant. They were bad. They were hard. Uh, I had things, I, I got denied a promotion. I was up for W-4, and I got passed over the first time because I didn't go to all the social events that they wanted. So the colonel gave me a bad rating. I got passed over. I told my colonel, my, 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 my uh, commander, says, I'm going to have to punch out. He says, I'm right with you. I got passed over, too, for colonel, for, for, for a full colonel. He got passed over. I said, you know, you never get picked up. Once you've been passed over, you never get picked up again. I mean, you're, just, you're done. So I was a W-3, had 22 years, and I was going to retire. Oh, 21 years. I was just going to retire. And that's what I did. And then... I, I got into college, had a program for the VA, going, got into college, did that for a couple years. But right after I got out, the W-4 list came out. I had made it, I would have made it the couple days after I got out. Got all these letters and notes from all these generals and stuff I knew or that knew about me. Hey, congratulations. Thanks. I'm out. But God wanted me out. Yes. Right then and there. And I got to Bellingham because I worked at the employment office on, the, on uh, the Air Force Base down there in Tacoma, McCord. I worked at the employment office uh, for disabled vets. Who was my number one customer? Me. I was helping vets, disabled vets find jobs, and I was number one. I had access to all the computers and all the job site things, you know. There's a big computer throughout the state. And I applied for jobs all the time. And I got the one up here. And I got moved up here. And I got a good job here. Worked there for 21 years. And then I, we found our church here. So I can look back and see how God worked things out. If this wouldn't have happened here, I wouldn't be where I am today. 
If this didn't happen here, that wouldn't have happened there, and I wouldn't be here where I am today. So it's fun when you're older to look back. I don't know how I got on this. It's fun to look back at how God worked in your life Amen. to bring you where you are. That's not part of the lesson. I was, I was free. I don't know how I got on that. Anyways, the problem is life itself. Without any reference to God, we find ourselves in a chaotic life without meaning or progress. Amen. And we see it all around us. Neither wisdom nor pleasure will enable us to live contentedly. You think wealthy folks are happy? What are they worried about? Their wealth. That's what they're worried about. They're not content. I can have anything I want. Why don't you give it away to folks that can have everything they want too? Oh, no. And they're worried about this new tax thing. And they're worried about that. They're worried about this. They're not content. That's why I never got rich. Other than not really trying to. That's why I never got rich. God didn't make me rich. That's right. So the preacher lays a foundation here for a God-centered view of life by critiquing all forms of secularism. Secular means attitudes, activities, other things that have no religious or any spiritual basis. Secular is contrasted with sacred, opposite. Secular is worldly. Sacred's godly. Do you understand the difference, sir? Okay. Secular. Okay. So, there's a couple of different attitudes about the secular person. Secular person, uh, the, the theoretical person, there is no God. There is no God. You don't hear too many folks saying that these days. They think it. They don't believe God, but so there is no God. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool has said in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that do with good. The more matter-of-fact secular person of today says, I don't care about God. Pastor was saying the other day, uh, uh, talking about as so, trying to witness to someone, they, they, they'll, they'll say, I'm, I'm good. And you want to get out your Bible and say, well, turn to Romans. <laughs> There's none good, no, not one. Where do you fit in? Okay. But today's attitude is, I don't need God. I got the government. That's right. That's science. What a situation that is, huh? So, so those, to those who maintain a viewpoint other than faith in God, the preacher essentially is asking, do you know what follows from your view of life? Same question we ask. If you die today, do you know if you'll spend eternity in heaven? Same thing. With your current viewpoint on life, what do you think is going to happen to you? Well, I don't believe in God, so I'm not worried about that. <laughs> Yeah, but you will believe in him. You'll believe in him, and you'll be on your knees believing on him, but it'll be too late. 
So the problems of life are given to us by God. Look at chapter 1, verse 13. And I gave my heart to seek and search out my wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sword travail hath God done what? Given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. We got our trials from God. But that was good news, wasn't it? We got our trials from God. The problems of life are given to us by God. And he didn't just leave us there. This book going to tell us what we got to do about that. Just about every book talks to us about how to, what to do about that. There's this thing called life and it has some inherent characteristics about it that some of them aren't pleasant. Some of them are very unpleasant. But God gives us those travails. And he doesn't expect us to work our way through it. He expects us to ask him. So the pessimistic viewpoint on life is without any practical faith in God who is trustworthy. So in his view... The secular person's view, there's no meaning or satisfaction to life. Pastor talks about the suicides in this county. Young people. No meaning or satisfaction in life. It's a dangerous place to be. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what's going on. I don't know when Nick loves me. You know, no uh, meaning or satisfaction in life. And the preacher is going to purposely experience this so he can comment on it. We'll see later on. So let's look at the actual text here. Since I've talked all about it. The preacher is going to have us see the, the firmness, the steadfastness of the pessimistic point of view. And then he's going to point to a life that derives its source from God himself. We're going to see the downside, then we're going to see the upside. So let's look at uh, chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So Ecclesiastes is written in the third person. What's the third person? Talking about somebody else. So this book is written in the third person, somebody talking about somebody else, and then it has a number of quotes. Verse number two is a quote of the person he's writing about. So in the words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem, talking about Solomon, vanity of vanity, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's a direct quote from Solomon, okay? Third person, but when you see first person, it's a quote. Is that about as clear as mud? Good. Got you right where I want you now. I can teach you anything. Okay. Everybody understand that? Written by somebody else, but he quotes Solomon. Solomon's not quoting himself. He didn't say, I said this. He's quoting what Solomon said. So verse number three, What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh 
under the sun. So the son of David, king of Jerusalem, refers to Solomon, of course, but he's given his artificial name, the preacher, and shows the writer is not claiming to be Solomon. He doesn't say who he is, when he is, or where he is. He's just talking about Solomon. This book is an account of Solomon's story. We've got some of his story back in, in Kings. In Chronicles, we've seen Solomon back in the Old Testament a lot. This is kind of like the untold story. Solomon was a very, very wise man. And he, through experience, was trying to figure out the meaning of life himself. He experienced things, and his wisdom and his resources helped him do things, and then he could talk about it. Okay? The, pessimistic, the pessimist problems. The preacher undermines confidence in a secular view. Verse number two, we have the futility of life. Verse number three, its consequences for man. Verse number four, we're going to look at these verses by themselves in just a second. The impossibility of getting rid of earthly realm, which embodies the problem. We're going to be stuck on earth for all of our life until we're taken out. Uh, the implication all this has for man's view of nature and history. We're going to talk about all of that. Vanity of vanity means utter vanity. You can't get any more vain than this. Vain. Let's describe, let's define vanity. Vanity is brevity, unsubstantial, unsubstantial, unsubstantiality. I'm really having problems speaking today. And emptiness, unreliability and frailty, futility, striving to no effect, and deceit. Ecclesiastes includes all these emphases. All is untrustworthy, unsubstantial, no endeavor, work, no endeavor will bring any permanent satisfaction. The greatest joys we have are fleeting. Anybody seeing that around? Vanity. No matter what we do, it doesn't get us there. He's going to describe some of that here in a bit. So between chapters 1, verse 2, and chapter 12, verse 8, the preacher will echo this key statement, all his vanity and, and all these things, about 30 times. This book is an exposition. Exposition is storytelling. An exposition tells how person A, uh, how uh, uh, person X got to point A, point B, then point C. That's what Ecclesiastes is written as. Okay? The word all in verse number two, all is vanity, literally means the whole. What do you think that includes? Everything. Everything. The whole. We see our little sphere that we live in. I like that word now, sphere. Realm. The realm that I live in. People think you're from Mars or something. Um, we see our... Um, totally lost where I was going to go with it. We see our, our place, our place under the sun, but we don't know about the whole. God does. The whole is this way. Everything is. The only person seeking satisfaction outside of God 
is what this is what he's talking about here in verse number two. If you're getting, if you're seeking satisfaction outside of God, you're vain. You're living in vanity. Amen. Okay. Christians, we have more to live for. That's right. We have an expectation, don't we? Amen. And we know what's going to happen. Amen. That's not vanity. That's Amen. faith. That's something we're looking forward to. That's going to happen. When faith is introduced, all vanity is still true, but not the whole picture now. It's true down here, maybe, but it's not true forever. It's true under the sun. If you're the guy living under the sun, just making your way, doing your thing, trying to get by. True for you, but not the whole truth. Amen. Okay? So I'm going to go one more point here. So in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 24 through 322, the preacher brings in new factors. New factors, new things. And they are the generosity of God. They are divine providence. Divine judgment. So that's going to be brought in to the man under the sun. I'm going to see what happens. See what his opportunities are. See what he says about that. Okay? So the vanity of life is not forgotten. Not forgotten. It's, it's still true. But these new factors are going to be brought in are going to transform our perspective and turn pessimism into faith, these new factors. These things that God's going to bring in is going to change our perspective. And you can stay where you're at if you want to, God says, but I have a way. Amen. New factors that can turn pessimism into faith. Amen. And that's great. So we'll stop here today. I'll pick up next Sunday. Pastor, was it last Sunday you talked about my moped thing? Was that last Sunday? My, my, on my, my birthday? Was that last Sunday? Let me tell you the real story. <laughs> Pastor was talking about me being, as a joke, as a, me being on a moped. And oh, oh, that was, get, I thought that was real. You thought, no, I'm going to give you the real story right now. <laughs> when I was a kid, my mom hated anything with two wheels and a motor. So when we, were, we got into our new home, and my dad retired from the Marine Corps, we got a new home there, and it was a brand new home, and behind it was walnut orchards, and they, they demolished that, took it all down, and started building houses back there. There was all kinds of roads and stuff. It was still dirt and a little bit of paving here and there. And all the buddies, one of the buddies had a mini bike. Remember what, remember what those were? Yeah. A little bit small motorcycle, a little bit fat tires on it, a little bit short thing, and it was fun. Yeah. Illegal on the road, yeah. but it was fun. And the guy at the corner had one. I didn't have one. So a bunch of us guys, I think I was in ninth or 10th grade. I don't remember. It, was, it wasn't too long before I got my license. But, and we started taking turns riding around where they were building these new houses at. And we had to get on the road a couple blocks or a block. And then and my mom's watching us. <laughs> Mom went in and called the police. <laughs> you don't know my mom. She's the one when I didn't write enough, she called the Red Cross. My mom, she's a, she makes it happen. She called the police. And then the cop came, and guess who's riding a minibike? It's my turn. Oh. And I get pulled over. And, you know, you're in a whole heap of trouble, son. I got ticketed for no license. 
driving an off-road vehicle on the road, know this, know that, know this, know that, guilty, 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 guilty. <laughs> my mom is right there and she says, thank you, officer, <laughs> in front of all my friends. And they split. And I had to go to court. I had to go to court because I had like tickets. And the judge was there, and I was kind of, you know, I was just a teenager. And uh, I was a little cocky once in a while. Can you believe that? I was a little cocky once in a while. But I was there, and the judge saw my parents there. He says, well, since your parents are here, I'm going to let you off easy. And he just gave me a, he just slapped me around for a little bit. Told me how bad I was to break the law and that kind of stuff. But since my parents were there and they cared, he had mercy upon me. And that's my mini bike story. <laughs> Don't cross mama. <laughs> I've learned that a few times. She doesn't get mad. She gets even. <laughs> you saying, oh yeah? No mini bike, Kurt. Okay, mom. <laughs> hey, mom. One, nine, one, one. My son. Yeah. My mom plays for keeps. Love my mom, she's still around, but boy, she's, man, I was raised ornery. Okay, this is a word of prayer. Thank you, Father, for the day. Thank you, for it. Father, for the lesson. Father, pray God you bless the service to follow in Jesus' name. Amen.